Prayer is a name simply for the leaning together of all our hearts toward the good that we desire. That's the way I decided to speak about prayer anyway in an intensely secular college where I used to serve as chaplain, a place with an ingrained academic skepticism about supernatural thinking. I decided that it was part of my job to remind people that naming the good that we desire is a useful thing to do and that leaning is something that almost everybody's heart does and that doing it together can be a comforting thing, an empowering thing. Of course, a church probably doesn't need to be persuaded about those things, do you? Prayer is one of the most familiar things we do, one of the most definitive of who we are and how we think and what we value. Even so, I think it's probably a good thing every so often to ask ourselves what we think prayer is and how it does what it does. I wonder if you remember how and when you learned to pray. For myself as a child, almost before I had any awareness of myself as a maker of choices, I was already following along with the words of a little song that my parents sang with me at bedtime. Jesus, tender shepherd, hear me. Bless thy little lamb tonight. Through the darkness be thou near me. Keep me safe till morning light. Then I remember a more conscious lesson involving the towering Mrs. Bechtel, who was the Kate Ninja of the church outside Chicago where I was a child, though she was quite a bit more intimidating figure than our beloved Kate and a lot less whimsical as I remember her. <laughs> Sunday school began with all of us children gathered in a space kind of like this to sing a song, hear a story or something. And Mrs. Bechtel was wanting to ingrain in us that praying was something that we could do in a lot of ways, pretty much any time. So she would ask, could I be praying right now? And then she'd stand there with a kind of whimsical grin on her face and her eyes cast upward. And she trained us all to respond in a thundering room-wide chorus, yes, you could. So I guess that like the people gathered around Jesus in the gospel, my learning started with content with the little song and then eventually the words that Mrs. Bechtel taught us to say out loud together, maybe not quite as thunderously, that she said came from Jesus. My learning started with the prayer, in other words, the one who prays, the thoughts in the head inside the upward gaze, the occasion and the circumstances and the feelings lurking behind the words. That wonderful contemporary writer, Anne Lamott, speaks for much of our culture, I think, when she says that her prayer life started, started out consisting pretty much of two prayers, help me, help me, help me, and thank you, thank you, thank you. Later, she added a third, 
Wow. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' lesson about prayer started because his disciples saw him doing it and were intrigued. Maybe even a little, I don't know, envious. Interestingly, he too started out with content. And as familiar as the words are now, there are a few things worth paying attention to in them as they go by. For example, Jesus instructed toward relationship. He began his prayer using the most familiar form of address he knew. And I don't think it's beyond possibility that the name those around him heard him speak was actually the intimate Aramaic word Abba, which means something like Papa. Closer to a name of endearment than a generic family descriptor. Also, Jesus taught prayer as a communal practice. Give us, he taught us to say, give us this day. Forgive us our debts and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Also, the prayer he taught was a way of yearning out loud for the fulfillment of God's reign on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. A way into belonging to the beloved community by longing for the fulfillment of God's realm. And then also, Jesus suggested that we ask for what we the most need to maintain life. As though the practice of prayer might actually teach us what our real needs are. Interestingly, the phrase about bread in that prayer includes a Greek word, epiosios, that nobody is quite sure how to translate because it never appears anywhere else in all of Greek literature. The sense of it might be something closer to give us today our essential bread, our necessary bread. Give us today what we need to stay alive. Jesus was confident about the efficacy of prayer, the power of prayer, and about the positive effects on us of being the prayers. But when Jesus began to teach about the prayee and what happens on the far end of the trajectory that begins with our heart's leanings, then, well, then I think Jesus found himself face to face with the same mystery that we do. And so, to point to it, Jesus stepped into the off-balancing, boundary-stretching language of parable. That place that Sean took us so expertly last week to visit in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Suppose, Jesus says, suppose you were surprised by a dear old friend just showing up at your house one evening. Maybe your old friend's car broke down in the vicinity. Or they just wanted to surprise you. <laughs> or maybe it's your child coming back home to roost in a suddenly no longer empty nest. So you go to the household next door way later in the day than you'd usually think to go and ask a favor of your neighbor whom you might or might not know super well. 
You swallow a couple of times standing on the stoop in the dark and then finally knock on the door and hear it echo inside. After a moment of silence, you look at your watch and you'd really like to turn away, but then you think about how much welcoming this guest matters to you, how you really want to provide something for your company. And maybe you remember having heard that thing we always say to each other, right? Let me know if there's anything I can do. And it crosses your mind that this is really one of those times. So you knock again, louder and a little longer this time. And this time a light goes on upstairs. You hear a shuffle across the floor and then a voice, a hoarse whisper so as not to wake the kids. Now, interestingly, at this moment, Jesus shifts the focus of the parable from the one outside knocking to the one inside. Nope, sorry, says the one who just woke up. It's too late. Kids asleep, head full of cotton, dog about to start barking, standing there in sleeping shorts. But then... Then the one inside feels that second louder knock and thinks about it some more, about how much it does matter to welcome a guest and about how it would inevitably get out if they couldn't come up with so much as a box of Triscuits, a carton of juice, a couple of apples. And here's where this parable really hits pay dirt for Old South Church, doesn't it? Old South, where we hear ourselves say all the time that of all the goods towards which our hearts might lean together, one of the highest and most important is hospitality. Maybe the neighbor even remembers having said at some point, let me know if there's anything I can do. We've all been there, right? And we're all right there standing in our sleeping shorts when Jesus says, just so you understand, the one who's on the receiving end of our prayers doesn't need to be waked up to your caring. If your own beloved flesh and blood asked you for food, would you give a snake? God forbid. But even if you'd do that and you wouldn't ever, God isn't like that. You are God's own beloved flesh and blood, more than you know. And the one you've called upon tenderly will receive what you ask tenderly, will search with you for what you need, will always, always open the door. Jesus said famously, ask and it will be given. Search and you will find, knock and the door will open. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and for everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Pretty confident, pretty encouraging, although I call your attention to the absence of nouns in that last sentence. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who searches finds. You don't have to be skeptical about the supernatural to have had some experience of the kind of prayer that feels like knocking for a long time on a door that doesn't open. 
searching with our words, leaning with our hearts towards something we can't find, something that doesn't come on cue or at all. We've all been there, too. Even Jesus had his own aching familiarity with the silence that somehow, sometimes seems to swallow prayer. As the storm clouds began to gather around his ministry, as he practiced a quality of welcome that some people found very threatening, as he insisted that goodness was not just a relational virtue but a structural one, a political and economic one, as the things Jesus stood for started to make him vulnerable, we have to assume that he became more and more accustomed to praying the prayer that the ones nearest to him finally heard him say out loud in the Garden of Gethsemane with the same intimacy he taught them. Abba, let this cup pass me by. And then, finally, they all heard the same echoing silence he did when he prayed, Why, oh why, have you forsaken me? True, then there was Easter, something they surely couldn't even have begun to imagine to pray for. But even then, on the resurrection evening, when Jesus joined them, they knew not how, behind locked doors, and showed them the wounds in his risen hands. Even then, I wonder if they happened to notice his knuckles, if they would have seen that they were raw from knocking. So just one last lesson from the finale of Jesus' teaching about prayer. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then, who know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more will God in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? How much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? That's the noun, the direct object. The answer to persistent, raw-knuckled prayer, at least for purposes of this lesson, is not the fish, not the egg, not necessarily the job or the all-clear diagnosis or the envelope in the mailbox or the outcome of the vote, not the wish list at all. The answer to our unwearied prayer is, of all things, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Jesus thought the Spirit was God's best gift to us. The advocate, the comforter, the enlivener, the breath that keeps us breathing. Now, if this sounds perhaps a bit abstract or theological as an answer to anything as concrete as a lot of our prayers tend to be. Then think about this. When our hearts lean together toward the good that we desire, the good that we desire, whatever the specific circumstances of that leaning might be, then maybe the thing that we most need to be watching for next is the movement of the Spirit. 
Sometimes what we, the prayers, most want to have happen as a result of what we've prayed doesn't happen. It didn't even happen that way for Jesus at the very end when he probably hoped the most that it would. But what the prayee can give instead and does give, gives best, is the fresh gift of spirit which blows where it wills, often in our peripheral vision, if not sneaking up from behind us altogether. The Spirit, who brings wholeness in ways we don't expect, enlivens in ways we weren't looking for, empowers where we thought no movement could be possible. So if you, who know how to gather yourselves together to pool your love, to sharpen your insistence on justice, to practice pushing loneliness away. If you, who instead of just wondering if there's ever anything you can do, have built a church about it. If you would never fail to give what you could, well then, how much more will the one who hears your knocking, who feels your asking, who shares your searching, how much more will that one set the Spirit to work again among you in the leaning together of all your hearts toward the good that you desire? May it be so. Amen. Oh,